Welcome to Bistec, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bistec. Let's dish up public procurement law. Very mysterious yet again. Very mysterious, but I mean, it is the title of the episode, so it can't be that mysterious, but good to have you back, uh, Marta. Likewise. It's so nice to to chat again. And uh, today we'll be continuing a bit of the debate or discussion that we had in the previous episode, where we talked uh, about the contents of of the book uh, that Roberto Caranta and I edited, uh, Mandatory Sustainability Requirements in, uh, in EU Public Procurement Law, Reflections on a Paradigm Change, coming out in October with Hart. And um, uh, we had a team of excellent scholars, young, old, super diverse in, in all its, um, uh, in, in, in the many ways that you can be diverse, I think nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, cross-disciplinary. Cross-discipli- cross-disciplinary. And I think also um, what I liked, uh, different stages of careers um, and also to have my co-host uh, present in the book as well. And you wrote a, um, uh, a chapter. Uh, which was uh, uh, called Climate Change and Public Procurement, hence the um, the title of today's episode. Uh, so it was Climate Change and Public Procurement, Are We Shifting the Legal uh, the legal Discourse? And um, we're talking a bit about that chapter today. We're talking about climate change and public procurement and also about this shift um, about the legal discourse. Uh, that's currently happening. And we're looking at three specific proposals. So we're looking a bit at your chapter, but we're also looking at three specific proposals. I think also to give that feeling that you had when you wrote that chapter, a bit of, uh, a, bit of uh, a bit of substance. But first off, uh, maybe you can uh, kick off, tell us a bit about the, the chapter itself, why you wrote it, who you wrote it with, most importantly. Um, uh, and, and then we'll continue uh, talking a bit, uh, a bit more and, and, uh, after that, for dessert, we'll look at, um, you know, similarly, but then in, from an academic perspective, is how we move between different areas, different fields of expertise when we uh, operate as, as academics. But first off, a, a kickoff, elevator pitch, the chapter. <laughs> chapter. Um, how to sell it the quickest way. Um, no, thanks Thanks for that lovely, lovely intro. Thanks also, obviously, for the invitation to be part of the book. Um the process in itself been, you know, really, really lovely to work on it. It's true. Um, we had a chance to contribute with chapter two to the book that follows the introduction um, that we talked about a little bit more in our previous episode. And um, within this chapter, I had a chance to collaborate with my uh, PhD student, uh, Federica Muscaritoli, uh, who writes her PhD on um, aspects of climate change and public procurement. The reason why uh, we, you know, sort of pitched that as an idea for the for the chapter and also for that chapter to kind of be a little bit umbrella and feeding into various other chapters is very much connected with, you know, the climate change mitigation right now, or climate change is a huge challenge for us as a, as a civilization, as a, as a planet. 
because what we can see very clearly is that climate change became a little bit something that directly or indirectly spread across every single legal discipline. A little bit in a similar notion as you had, you know, new technologies, AI, digitalization. I find the same, particularly the aspect of climate change. It's very much right now the discussion um, in in various academic circles from really competition law. Some of, you know, my great colleagues, um, Julian Novak, um, from the Lund University that, you know, specializes in competition law. He's been doing a lot of work about, you know, weaving in sustainability aspects in competition law and really highlighting also the climate change issues. So I find that um, this is something that for many ways, public procurement law also has a role to play, needs to play its role. And you can really clearly see how much the new proposals, various new proposals and various acts relate the issues of climate change to public procurement. But also the um, the element of um, how the procurement can be used as a tool and also understanding what are the limitations yep. within, that, within that discussion. So, you know, I think it's the need for adjustment of all the different legal fields, finding the way how this fits. So it's not, you know, something that we, you know, it's, it's something that in that chapter in the introduction we write that procurement law will always play a supportive role. It's not like we're going to mitigate the climate through public procurement law or we cannot go obviously as far as saying that climate law right now is the objective of procurement law. But there is undoubtedly an aspect and in line with what you described also with this shift towards mandatory elements that climate change and emissions particularly need to be addressed also throughout procurement. Yeah, so procurement has a role to play just like Environmental law has a role to play, just like uh, public interest, climate litigation has a role to play. It's in well, many fields. It's it's this discussion pops up. I think so, but you know, I just wanted to emphasize slightly because the examples that you gave, I think that the link is you know even closer, right? Like it's kind of obvious that environmental law needs to do that. But I quite like this notion of pointing out, you know, product liability aspects, uh, constitutional law. We see how much has been going on around constitutional law and national constitutions, you know, from all this debate around climate change in Netherlands or the German case or, you know, um, Italy um, adjusting their um, constitution to include this a notion of right to clean environment and so on. Yeah, for future generations. Absolutely. And the same UN and, you know, kind of acknowledging the right to you know, environment that can sustain future generations, all that. So I think what for me is particularly interesting is this commercial level of it, you know, how those legal disciplines that are not very obvious, but how they adjusting and how we can really see that. And that's everything from contract law, company law, you know, the whole due diligence notions um, of regulation on the EU level that we see. All of those actually are being right now focused on adjusting because of the new markets that we need to that we need to sort of restructure the markets that we're working in and how our particular um, law contributes to that and what are our limitations right yeah and I think uh, 
to add to that, I'm not sure if I'm going to make friends in other disciplines, but they're not listening anyway. So <laughs> um, I, I also think that public procurement has really paved the way already, right? When we talk about all the possibilities that are there, the scholarships that's there to discuss how you can integrate sustainability considerations, how you can take the climate into account in a public procurement procedure and what role the law plays, just to, to, to reference it, competition law really struggles with with sustainability as an objective for uh, competition laws around the globe, but also for EU competition law. And I think that's where perhaps also other fields of law can learn or at least, you know, see how public procurement law strikes that balance between environmental consideration, climate considerations, and still upholding fundamental values and principles of law, right? Mm. Um uh, and I'm not saying that they can be copied one on one, but I think when we talk about front runners and fields of law that really struggle, I think uh, public procurement law is really in the former category. Well, I think because, you know, there is this public notion of it, right? And something that I've been, um, you know, researching a little bit of trying, because what is very important for me is that in this area of sustainable procurement or climate and public procurement, there's a really a lot of debate that is policy based and yep. and how we really focus on the legal aspect because i feel like a lot is being promoted through policies and sometimes from people who are not investigating close enough they mention that certain things that are policies are actually you know applicable laws when they actually are not but i think what the aspect that really interests me is how you can and whether there are you know those legal legal links when you're starting to look on things like can you develop a legal link between the notion um, of um, governments regulating mm-hmm. and then governments at the same time like dismissing, almost like forgetting that a regulator had and when they purchase, when Themselves, they act yeah. Uh, yeah, as a commercial uh, party, whether they can disregard this. Because, you know, as, as we write with Federica in the chapter, it, it, it would be quite hypocritical, but we can discuss that on ethical basis and so on. But is there like also a legal argument saying you cannot do that? Um, similarly, the public taxpayers' money, they become sort of public money that are to be spent in accordance with the wishes of the current government. The more green governments and policies we have in place, should that be reflected again really in the in the in the loss and the purchasing practices. So I think that that's also quite interesting element, you know, how you build almost like administrative law argument, I guess, here, yep. a constitutional elements, like how financial law element, like how you build that in the, in the legal argument. Yeah. And then just to tap into what you were saying, that it's, it, this policy debate has really been spurred by the EU Commission, who's talked to for a long time about... Uh, socially responsible public procurement in a social sense, uh, green public procurement. Um, and then in your chapter, you, if I can nudge you or yeah. tickle you a little bit, you actually uh, make life a bit more complicated because you introduce a new type of procurement. Can you tell us a bit more about um, low emission procurement? Um, and if that actually makes life more difficult, of course. Uh, well, I think that in a way it does. Um, in a way, I think it, also hopefully clarifies because I think where the link is again with our previous chapter when we discuss, you know, what is really the value of sectoral focus when we're introducing mandatory elements. that It provides certain clarity, it provides 
certain standardization, et cetera, et cetera. And I think when we started to work on this chapter, we were really trying to figure out, because, you know, if you say that you're going to write about green public procurement, that actually is a lot of different things. Exactly. It's a lot of different things because you can focus on um, things um, sectorally. So, you know, organic, for example, in food context, that will be green procurement, right? Or you can focus really on emissions, which are very much aligned with climate. But you yep. can also focus on biodiversity, yep. clean water. It's so many different aspects of it. And we were trying with Federica to really scope out out of all of it a very clear element of strategic focus or potentially later on where you really need to target and mandatory requirements. So our line of hypothesis and thought has been that if we follow really the Green Deal and we follow the various sectoral legislation, that in majority of them, they touch upon emissions yep. one way or another. Yep. So if we would want to establish this minimum focal point, then the focus needs to be on emissions as a certain prioritization maybe of other ones. And this one, you know, I, I fully acknowledge that this is controversial because I remember when we got feedback from you guys on the first draft, you know, yeah, someone that, you know, on human rights, let's say element and someone whose basic human rights right now are really breached, they kind of would say, well, I don't care what will happen with planet in 10 years. My life is really terrible right now. And I fully respect that, you know, it's, yeah. it's, I'm just, we we just try to focus on that and say, okay, if this is prioritized by specific member state or specific even contracting authorities on organization level as a strategy, as a point of priority, this is what we would focus on. And that's why we sort of in the chapter, we point out the various aspects of sustainable public procurement, how green public procurement differs. But then we also point out what is the difference between green public procurement and low emissions with clearly identifying that with low emissions, you focus specifically on emissions. And a really great example that um, Federica came out with, you know, is is, uh, um, this talk about buying bananas by contracting authority in Denmark. That you know the 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 notion of buying organic bananas, the first the que- questionable que- questionable question the que- first questionable aspect is if you look at it strictly from sustainability perspective whether you know we in country like Denmark should be buying bananas in the first place right but let's say okay that we're yeah. on to next page but then we say organic and. By the definition and categorization of green public procurement, this is a green purchase yeah. because organic has that element. But all the element of the greening of that procurement that you achieve through label of organic is diminished by the external um, external negative uh, negative external externalities. Sorry, I, not in my mind at this second. I'm trying to pull it together. Uh, You're doing a great job. Keep it up. <laughs> but yeah, this negative um, environmental externalities that transport uh, exactly. provide us, like this is not definitely then climate friendly, right? Like the the, the the climate neutral purchase. So I think this is, we just tried to clearly point out at the very beginning what this chapter will be about yep. and what it will not be about in the notions of, you know, being clear and precise. Yeah, and I think that's really because, of course, I was playing devil's advocate when you sure. when I said when I introduced um, this part of your chapter, um, because I think it rightly taps into discussions about 
can procurement be a fix for everything and can each uh, procedure or each procurement fix all the problems in the world? Right? Yeah. I'm being a bit dramatic, but like some procurements, it seems that it's some are more suitable to just tackle emissions. And then particularly in the climate change context, that makes a lot of sense to do that then. Well, absolutely. Like if we're talking, you know, transport, right? It would be really bizarre if we're thinking sustainable procurement and you do anything with public transport and you would not think about the emissions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also like what underlies a lot of the discussions here that we're having about climate change and, and public procurement. It's, it's this question of what do we include? Emissions make a lot of sense, but also what does the law prescribe when we talk about mandatory requirements? Um, at the moment, there's not a lot that's being prescribed, right? We have the Clean Vehicles uh, um, Directive talking about emissions. Um, but what I liked about your chapter is when you say, are we shifting the legal discourse? Is the answer yes or no? Yeah, I think that, that we are shifting the discourse because what we're seeing is that we have a more and more regulation by targets, which for us is public procurement, especially this is not something that we're really used to. So we're not entirely sure how to go about it. And also if you ask, you know, practitioner, one of the things that we looked at is, you know, can you derive any sort of guidelines or obligation from EU climate law, from, you know, national climate acts, what happens there, to what extent me as an advisor to contracting authority can say, well, I need to do this and this. And this at the current stage is really um, uncertain. And there are many different questions of, you know, how you do it, because it's the, this, how we disperse various targets and to what level of granulity we go. And it's again, are we saying, for example, each contracting authority in every this type of sectoral procurement need to consider lowering emission, let's say by, I don't know, 10% in a scale of three years or, or how are we doing that? Because that also um, is connected with the discretion of contracting authorities because it also can be, you know, this approach that you have rather um, assign the specific target uh, that needs to be reached on organizational level. So you no. say, you know, municipality of Utrecht, municipality of Copenhagen, throughout all your procurement, you have this target, but how you disperse and how you sort of shift it, it's left to you. And, and the positive aspect of that is that that allows each contracting authority to work with particular market maturity and the cost related to that maturity across different procurements. So, you know, in a certain aspects, it might be already relatively cheap to get, you know, low emission solutions. In others, it might be that you only have one supplier or two suppliers and it's very expensive. So you have still the possibility of shifting it and yeah. still reaching that target. But we don't have yet very clear guidelines through it. The interesting things that we can see that some of our colleagues already uh, drafted some preliminary research on that, um, is that France, Spain and Portugal, they're starting to write into the really national procurement laws, specific provisions connected to climate change national laws. Yeah, and I think that when we talk about shifting the legal discourse, we, particularly in Europe, we're very focused on procedural rules that are... Aim to create an internal market for public contracts. Now we're also faced with different types of 
pieces of legislation targets, right? You rightly point to, if I can summarize it, um, questions of practical implementation, enforcement before the courts. Like, can you take, is this, is, are these targets going to be the next agenda case on which a target hasn't been met? And the next question is, it also violates some type of human right. And in connection to that, you could take the Dutch government to court again, right? And also like, you know, a whole question about legal standing can right now also like competitor come and say, well, you didn't address, uh, you know, this uh, specific uh, target in your contract performance or can we sue contracting authority right now saying that they didn't to enough, uh, you know, on level uh, basis that they didn't meet that um, target yet. So I think targets in general are just really interesting because while they have been present in other um, areas of law for us in yep. procurement is something that it's quite new to figuring new out how to enforce it, what to do with it. Yeah. No, so I think that's one tick in the box of we are indeed shifting the legal discourse, right? Um, when we look at uh, the the everyday life of a public procurement professional, broadly speaking, they look at the procurement directives. Most of them then more specifically look at the classic directive. And I think the the second point that you rightly make in the chapter is that with Lots of other pieces of legislation, uh, regulations, directives coming out of Europe, mostly out of the Green Deal. It means that we're also shifting the legal discourse there. It means that, you know, us public procurement lawyers, if I can boldly state it, perhaps need to become some sort of environmental law lawyer. At least you need to become aware of this various different legislations, right? And then it speaks very much and connects again to your intro chapter and your general conclusions for the book, that we have this typology of different solutions and uh, each one of them also um, are reflected in various different provisions um, when it comes to emissions. Yeah, for sure. So when we come back to the climate discussion, what you do really nicely with Federica in the the chapter is you talk, you give a broad overview of different initiatives. We won't have enough time to discuss all of them, Mm. which is why what we're doing today is we're looking at three specific ones that also have a clear link to, to the climate um, and that are very recent. Yeah, they are connected to the chapter, but they are not in itself elaborated in the chapter. So right now we're going a little bit beyond what the chapter exactly. is, right? And that's partially because they're super recent. So that's very these true. are initial uh, reflections. We're talking about batteries, um, uh, which, uh, which has been adopted, and then two proposals, one on net zero and one on deforestation. And what we would like to do is, I think, showcase a little bit. We can't be exhaustive, but I think what we'd like to do is showcase a bit about the different dimensions that exist related to the specific criteria. So how you would have to uh, look at this is we have a regulation and there's one provision, say, about public procurement. right? And we're seeing that that that's a bit of a trend. In all these pieces of environmental uh, legislation, you see one provision or two popping up a bit in the recitals about public procurement outside of the scope of the more traditional public procurement uh, directives. And it's sort of a bit like, hello, we're here, but it's not really exhaustive or guiling enough for you to kind of know what to do with it. Exactly. Which is a bit tricky, right? Um, So yeah, undoubtedly. To start us with, with the proposal for the regulation on Net Zero Industry Act. So this act ultimately is focusing on scaling up the manufacturing of the clean technologies in the 
EU, yeah. right? So we're talking wind turbines, batteries as well, solar PV, um, water pumps, heat pumps. Yes. And what is interesting is that in the recital and in the um, proposed Article 19, there is this reference to sustainable and resilience contribution, right? That that already kind of, um, for even someone that kind of knows a lot about sustainability procurement, that already raises a question, resilience. So that's another new thing, yeah. what we're doing here. Yeah, def- I mean, definitely. It's, it's, it's interesting and I think it closely links to much of the legislation that Europe seems to be greening, but there also seems to be a strong focus on uh, security of the supply, making sure that we have enough supply in Europe and that we can't, don't have to rely on third countries such as China or Russia or any of the BRICS countries that, you know, might have competing interests to, to Europe. Yeah, instead of focusing the post-COVID, I think also indirectly in context of, you know, the conflict in Ukraine, this whole notion of we need to be more self-sufficient when it comes to energy, right? Exactly. Strategic autonomy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Willem, can you guide us then through, so what specifically within that um, Net Zero Industry Act relates to procurement? Yes. So we have a, an Article 19, as you mentioned, um, which is headed a Sustainability and Resilience Contribution in Public Procurement Procedures. And it basically, um, it, it's got some mandatory requirements, right? And whether they're super mandatory or not, we'll talk about that in a second. But basically, it refers to contracting authorities and contracting entity, entities. And um, it, it, it includes that in a public procurement procedure, uh, when uh, uh, using the most economically advantageous tender as an award uh, criteria, it, these entities, and I quote now, shall include the best price quality ratio comprising at least the sustainability and resilience contribution of the tender. And the, the sentence goes on, but it, it, at least that should be included. Right? It doesn't say much about the quantity. And then the, the, the article goes on to say that the tender sustainability and resilience contribution shall be based on the following cumulative criteria, which shall be objective, transparent, and non-discriminatory. Environmental sustainability going beyond the minimum requirements in applicable legislation. That's maybe a first one that we can tackle in a bit. Where an innovation, innovative solution needs to be developed, the impact and the quality of the implementation plan, including risk management measures, and see where applicable the tender's contribution to the energy system integration. And maybe for this podcast, we'll only look at the first. But I think, what do you think when you hear environmental sustainability going beyond? What's the first red flag that pops up? <laughs> How much? <laughs> yes, exactly. How much beyond is okay? Yeah, uh, because it's it's a very you know, but I guess uh, it's it's commonality across various sustainability initiatives, right? So um, what I would prefer probably if it's, you know, sort of establish some type of minimum requirement and then somehow maybe, you know, obliging or indicating that if you want to go beyond and you should go beyond, you should put it in award criteria, right? So yeah. you kind of scale it, it up, right? Yeah. But the way how it's worded, it's, you know, the questions automatically, I think all practitioners will ask, okay, so how much more? What does this exactly mean? Yeah, what yeah. does it exactly mean? Yeah. 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 And I think one that's clear, and I forgot the D section just then, is that um, there are also, there's a requirement, or at least that's being proposed, right? Uh, 
to uh, to to include uh, more than 65% of the supply for which that net ze- net zero technology originates from within the European Union, right? That's a bit clearer. And I think for all of them, what's interesting is that this provision also proposes that the that contribution of sustainability and resilience um, uh, is given a weight between 15 and 30% of the award criteria. Yeah, that's that's a bit more specific, at least exactly. you use somewhere, right? But I think what that D um, element also is quite interesting from a broader perspective is um, the debate of, at least in, in, in context of the Net Zero Industry Act, for the reason of stability, security, you know, resilience, readiness, that is used to give a certain preferential treatment, a requirement for European, you know, companies, European manufacturing, right? Which I think that um, it speaks volumes on the general thing. We haven't been at all in context of procurement giving preferential treatment to our own exactly. European. And I think this is this this building not, you know, the Dutch, the Danish um, leaders in sectors. But right now, I think that slowly we moving that direction, that it will be preference for European manufacturing, European companies, yep. and so on and so forth. So that's an interesting aspect to see that right now. I think that's really interesting in this proposal, as, as limited as it may be, going beyond at least the mm. generally red flags, right? Um, there's also a bit more specification there, uh, but I think the security of supply, the strategic autonomy is really interesting here. And I think just one final aspect, there's also a way out still, or at least that's being proposed in section four. And I think it's important to just yeah, briefly mention is, that. Which is, you kind of got excited, a bit confused. Yeah, and there's you something happening. Something happening. And then you're going to this uh, provision, paragraph four, and what you have them. Basically, it, it allows this contracting authority or contracting entity that is obliged to apply those mandatory criteria uh, to not apply them. So it's the way out. Um if that would result, and these are my own words, a bit paraphrasing, in disproportionate costs or technical characteristics different from those of the existing equipment, resulting in incompatibility, technical difficulties in operation or maintenance, right? A broad scale, it doesn't work if we have to buy this like this or it costs too much, basically. Yeah. And then cost, is, uh, cost differences above 10% may be presumed uh, to be uh, disproportionate. And my first gut feeling is, is this will mean that it, it, it becomes an opt-out for basically any procurement, right? This, there's always an option to say, well, 10%, it's, not, it's a hefty increase, but also not insane. So it basically means that this provision, or at least at first sight, will uh, is, can easily be disregarded for by contracting authorities and entities that do not want to apply it. Yeah, I, I very much agree with you. So what I like is the 10%. I like that they sort of, because, you know, before you go to that element, you're also saying, well... For those of you that didn't know yet, Marta likes legal certainty. I do love legal <laughs> certainty. Absolutely. But, you know, my point being is that everything could be disproportionate. I think, it, you know, it's it's yeah. very scalable. It's different member states would interpret it differently, right? So I like that there is this 10%, but I very much agree with you that it's a bit shame because I think that that provision might be, I don't know whether abuse is the right word, but yeah, it's very much a way out for a for lot. Sure. And I think that way out, I mean, it's still in the proposal phase, right? So it could could change still. Um, we still have two to go. Which yeah, one would to, you like to need, do? We need to get that. Batteries first? Yeah, or yeah let's go to batteries. Okay. So batteries has been adopted on the uh, 28th of June, a regulation about um, uh, concerning batteries and waste batteries. 
And uh, this this uh, regulation aims to prevent and reduce uh, the adverse impact of batteries in the environment and to um, ensure a safe and sustainable battery value chain. And um, in Article 85 of this um, finalized uh, regulation, we now see also a provision again about green public procurement. And it, um, uh, it, it aims to, or at least obliges contracting uh, authorities and entities to uh, take into account the environmental, in, the environmental impacts of those batteries over their life cycle with a view to ensuring that such impacts are kept to a minimum. So take into account, but also ensuring in that first uh, first introduction. And then the, the provision moves on to being a bit more more specific, right? It, uh, it states that, um, you know, it needs to include uh, award criteria and technical specification based on some of the provisions in, in this uh, regulation relating to carbon footprint, recycled content and performance durability. So it is a bit more specific, but then again, and this is the cliffhanger, and then I'll leave the floor to you to shoot uh, mm-hmm. at the moving target that I, well, actually this is a fixed target. It's not moving anymore. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think, I think that what is um, also interesting and what it ties with the beginning of our episodes, that this is, you know, sector legislation that again very clearly points out to carbon footprint, yes, right? Very true. So, so it kind of is a good example, I think. Ultimately, what what we point out, um, I think that this is again a bit more specific, right, when it comes to the award criteria and the technical specification, which is preferable, but it still leaves a lot of questions unanswered on how. You are to structure it, what will work and what will not. Do you need to have that in both? Most presumably not, just in one of them. Um, But um, we have it already approved. So I think this is also a good element to highlight for, again, our practitioner listeners that this already been approved. So that's coming to be enforceable. Yeah, for sure. And I think what's interesting about this discussion about, it does say technical specifications and And, award criteria. mm, So the question is, you know, is there still a, a bit of, Picking or, or choosing there, and what's interesting is it it still needs to be fleshed out in delegated acts by the uh, by the European Commission, um, and I think that's a, a point worth highlighting. So that's a like the fact that there's delegated acts assigned to the Commission about technical aspects is not um, uncommon in environmental law. The Commission, based on this regulation, can then adopt the delegated acts further fleshing out these. Um, the, these these um, uh, award criteria for for public procurement procedures. Um, in an article that I wrote for for a book edited by, amongst others, um, Tom van der Brink, I do question this approach because I I wonder if this is the right way forward. Right, if we really talk about this fundamental change, right, this this paradigm shift towards mandatory requirements, I think you can at least question if it should be left up to the Commission to hash it out. Mm. To say the Commission, you know, you can just um, and, and I'm being a bit too negative perhaps, but, you know, I think there should be legislative scrutiny in at least in a trilogue procedure, uh, because I do think this is an essential aspect of EU law and right. Delegated acts can only mm. be used for non-essential aspects of, of the law. Um, so I think what's interesting for in, in the time to come when it comes to batteries is how this will actually flesh out because we simply don't know yet. We have a contours that are sketched by article 85, but what's really happening in delegated acts, we will find out very soon. It'll have something to do with technical specifications and award criteria and the life cycle. But other than that, not yet. Yeah, and of course, the question is also how much some type of dialogue with specialists and stakeholders the commission 
is having right now. So it really, the proposal that is given is a proposal that can be really implemented across all the European member states, right? Yeah. So yeah, I, I think that you spot on. Um, and with that, I think we can move to the yeah, last one, for sure. which is the proposal for the regulation um, on the making available on the union market and export from the union of certain commodities and products associated with deforestation and forest degradation. Um, so this one is quite interesting because it touches upon various commodities that are identified. So it ultimately, this proposal lays down rules regarding the placing and making available on the union market, as well as the export of relevant uh, products that are all listed in Annex 1 to this regulation. And just to give um, our listeners a bit of a uh, taste of what type of commodities we are talking about here, we're talking about cattle, cocoa, coffee, oil, oil palm, rubber, soy, um, wood, um, with the view. So the view, the purpose of that regulation being to minimize the contribution of the European Union to deforestation and forest degradation worldwide. So this is in itself quite interesting. We're looking quite extraterritorial yeah, here. For sure. And um, therefore, ultimately, to contribute to redu reduction of global deforestation and tying back to our beginning of of, um, of the episode and our chapter with Federica, reducing the union's contribution to greenhouse gas emissions and global biodiversity loss. Yeah. So again, super relevant for climate change. Absolutely. And, and I think when we look at the spectrum, because I think the picture that's emerging from even discussing these three bits of legislation is is that everyone tackles mandatory requirements in a very different way. And I think that's also the general gist of fragmentation that came up out of the out of the book mm -hmm. uh, the, with the other chapters. Because what happens here, what's the, the penalty uh, for not abiding by the rules in this, um, yeah, in and this I just, uh, regulation? And I just want to point out before I describe the penalty itself that there is also quite similar approach to using kind of public procurement as part of penalties yep. in another piece of legislation uh, that is proposed and that's the proposal for green claims directive in its article 17 yep. uh, paragraph 3 so what we can refer to as you know directive for anti kind of greenwashing and both that um, green claims directive proposal and the deforestation regulation proposal have a section on penalties. And what is interesting that in the section of penalties, at some point in deforestation, that is in Article 25, Paragraph 2, um, that reflects that for the penalties that are provided in Paragraph 1, for them to be effective, proportionate and dissuasive, the penalties should include, and then in para D, in point D, there's reference to public procurement and how the wording stands. And um, I'm pretty uh, certain that in both the acts that I just mentioned, they worded very similarly. Temporary exclusion for maximum period of 12 months from public procurement processes and from access to public funding, including tendering procedures, grants and concessions. Yeah. It, it 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 was a new i think element added uh, to uh, to this whole debate about mandatory requirements 
I think also very nicely showcased by a blog that you wrote uh, with Mihao Kanya uh, on the Bistec blog. So have a look if you'd like to um, read a bit more about that other piece of legislation. We said we'd only do three, so we can't do four right now, but you squeeze in another one. (laughs) But I think what's uh, there's a lot to say. And and there's one that I would uh, like to say about this one that you just um, read out loud is does this fit within the system of, of exclusion grounds, right? We have a list in the public procurement directives. Well, absolutely. And that's a little bit where we elaborate with Mihao in the in the Bastec, um blog post talking about, you know, growing catalog of exclusions, but actually that catalog grows outside of the directive. And it leaves a lot of questions unanswered because it's this one provision, but nowhere else there is any other information is that additional ground that is of a facultative nature that leaves the discretion for the contracting authorities uh, to choose whether it should be applied or not? Is it mandatory? Should it, f- so, to, so to speak, follow the requirements and terms and conditions that are associated with all the other exclusion grounds that we have in the directive? Therefore, there needs to be a final court decision in yeah. regards to those things or not. Yeah, self-cleaning. What self-cleaning, does the whole exactly. concept apply? And I think, you know, when you when you look at the provision itself, the member states shall lay down rules on penalties. Uh, the penalties provided for shall be effective, proportionate and dissuasive, and they shall include. So at least there's some sort of strong call to action that there needs to be something that needs to happen. Well, how that fits within all of the the discourse? At least it's an interesting addition to the to the palette from an academic perspective. It Whether, absolutely yeah. is, but I think that it leaves more questions than it provides answers. Because the you know exactly the the wording is um, it's tricky, and I think particularly the lack of broader contextualization, what consequences of that are associated with it, um, will leave a lot of uh, people questioning it. Because also I think what is important here when it comes to these penalties, you know, of breaches in context of something like deforestation, for me, what I always am interested in, okay, how you are to be proven that you actually did something wrong. And if that ultimately, which very often in areas of, and I'm putting everything in one bucket right now, of the sustainable consideration um, is based, it's very often that at some point you need to provide probably self-declaration. And if it's a self-declaration, you know, it's like, what is the really, va- going back to no, my yeah. my appreciation of legal certainty, what would you can really do with that and how you, who is investigating that and so on and so forth. So I think that all the people that are quite skeptical towards, you know, sustainability and public procurement, this gives them a brilliant ammunition to pointing out that we cannot just spread public procurement everywhere and expect that all of it will be addressed in public procurement. It needs to be a little bit more thought out, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, I I think we'll leave it at that. There's much more to say about this provision and the other three, and there's many more to discuss, but perhaps uh, we can do something more on another occasion. Um, Just to to wrap it up, we talked a bit about your chapter on climate change that you wrote with, uh, with Federica about public procurement and are we shifting the legal discourse? We talked about, you know, this new assessment of targets, but also... Uh, a discussion about specific uh, provisions that went a bit beyond the chapter, but you know are super relevant and new and novel. Um, delegated acts, uh, penalties, uh, but also just s- simple uh, setting of, of of norms. Right, uh, different variations uh, pop up. I, I, I think food for thought for the future, hopefully, but also definitely not the end of the discussion. I'm sure more will will follow. Um, but 
when we talk about shifting the legal discourse, we're moving not just to targets, but also to other pieces of environmental legislation. There's a shift there. But I think, um, and, and I'm moving slowly towards dessert, I think that is also something that we do a lot in our um, in our academic career, right? We reinvent ourselves, we do new things, but that can also sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable, right? I still vividly remember moving away from in-house and public-public. I'll never forget my first love in academia <laughs> of my PhD, but... <laughs> Each Sorry, time. are you all right, Matt? Each um, time. <laughs> um, uh, first love, but definitely not married yet to a subject. I mm. like sustainability now. Maybe in a couple of years, it's something else. But I think that can come come with certain challenges, right? It can make you um, feel like you're perhaps not the expert there, or it can make you feel enthused or excited or, you know, all those sorts of things. So that's why I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to talk about that today. Um, how does that make you feel, Marta? Um <laughs> A little bit more alive and awake, undoubtedly. I think it's also very interesting in context of the work that we've been both collaborating on over again last month. And I have two or three thoughts that 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 come to my mind. I think first is, you know, one aspect is really of um, moving within the area of your expertise to different to different themes. So, you know, you're still in procurement and as you said, you kind of did in-house, then you do sustainability. And so I think that that is still somehow manageable and within uh, within the boundaries that we feel comfortable, I think, one way or another. I think when this becomes really something that you... um, Feel like you might be flying by the edge of your pants. I believe I paraphrased the English phrasing for far too long. Is when you particularly let's take the sustainability aspect. When you suddenly starting to be asked and comment on, and you feel like you need to, for example, really become a specialist in like climate studies yep. or you know quantification of emission. Or, you know, really like risk assessment, supply chain planning, forecasting, you know, suppliers diversification, like things that are not really coming of procurement law. They're not even coming from law, but you need to understand those other disciplines that are not legal to be able in an informative way um, to, to, to look on some of the provisions. And then that is... Uh, similar or on level of difficulty as when you need to branch to totally different and maybe sometimes even opposite area of law. So something that we're collaborating on right now, it's a book project that we're merging really um, perspectives of public procurement law, public contract law with private commercial contract law. So, you know, again, sort of language-wise, we're using very different language. We kind of want to talk about things that we sort of feel like we know and we understand, but are very different. And I think that we pride ourselves in our academic careers, you know, getting somewhere for over many years and be specialists in. And you usually come across, I find, two academic types. One to get excited, mm-hmm. let me try and let me see, yep. and one that feel quite, you know, I don't know if scared is a good word, uncomfortable, yeah, Yeah. you know, a bit anxious, I guess, that before they can make that kind of step or jump or leap, they need a lot of time to get acquainted with whatever the other thing is. Yeah. 
I, it always reminds me a bit of, I, I worked at two law firms briefly, one when I was studying and one when I worked in Australia is like this, this competition that's sometimes between partners in the, in the firm, right? You don't want to give any work or clients to other partners. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not really my field of law, but I'll, I'll, I'll scoop it up. All right. Mm. Cause otherwise I might lose the client and, if you, and I can also do that. Right. I'm the best lawyer on the planet. Right. Um, and, and comprehensive service, c- comprehensive, full service, yeah. where uh, legs on the table, open door policy type of law firm, that mm-hmm. type of thing. Um, and I think there's, there's a risk there, right? But I find it's, I don't have a conclusive answer here, but I think there's, we're always balancing between being inspired also to further influence what you previously researched, exploring new avenues, new ways, right? Really in-depth research, because that's also where new stuff comes from. Hmm. And that feeling that you described very rightly is that uncomfortable feeling of, am I really an expert there or am I there yet? Can I give a presentation on this already? Or should I have, should I know all the angles, have read all the books, all the articles, you know, before I can do that? Yeah. And I think also if you look at that, because we tend in this part of the podcast always, you know, reflect a bit on career paths in academia, is... Um, that you might find yourself in two challenging scenarios from different reason. And that is, or you can become, you know, a specialist very quickly. Yeah. Um, because procurement um, law ultimately is a niche subject, largely. Um, so yeah, you can very quickly and for many years be in procurement law, but the later on you are in academia, you're being expected to kind of contribute to one of these big, you know, courses, big themes. You yeah. need to go outside. So sort of boxing yourself too quickly might be a bit of a challenge. On the other hand side, if you kind of dab in a bit of everything at the same time, you run into the challenge of saying, but who they are, like in what they are experts in, right? Yeah. So it's fine balance of finding the right way. But I think this is, wouldn't you agree though, Willem, this is also the only way to kind of continuously to stay curious, learn more things, be able to look at things from, you know, different, fresh perspective. Yeah. And I think it's, I I fully agree with you. And I think honesty is simply the key to to mitigating that balance, right? And just saying, okay, well, I've started researching this. It will take me some time before I can have some type of opinion or expertise on it, before I can weigh up all the aspects and angles that are there and i think then of course because otherwise you know we'd be stuck doing the same thing for the rest of our academic career and i think also research wouldn't flourish or 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 advance right but there's an inherent tension there and um it can feel uncomfortable i think but in 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 general it leaves me very excited always to think about oh i'm doing something very different same when we talked about your chapter in the book it's a bit uncomfortable, not not the chapter itself, but mm. the shifting the legal discourse, right? It's kind of like, I felt like I was reading way more environmental law books oh, yeah. than procurement books when, yeah. I, when I was editing it. I'm sure you had the same when you wrote that oh, chapter. Oh, absolutely. When you needed to really dive into, you know, what environmental law is and what this targets, how they distribute. It's, it's things that, you know, if you pick up any procurement law article, even if not on your kind of topic, something different that you never really you know, spend much time on research, you feel connection. You see where that logic is. But um, this other fields, um, it's definitely something that challenges that. But I also think that growth happens when you get a bit uncomfortable. So I think it's a, it's a positive thing. Hooray for unco- feeling uncomfortable. Yeah, let's embrace it. Um, thank you so much, Marta, for, for highlighting some aspects of your, your chapter that you wrote with uh, Federica. Um, 
I really hope that people will take notice of it, of course. And um, we look forward to your comments as always. Uh, we'll put the link to the chapter in the in, in the bio of the uh, of this uh, episode, and we'll round it up uh, from here. This was Bistec, the Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bistec, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestechpodcast.com.